In this episode of the Steven Seagal Podcast, we answer the question, have all Steven Seagal's films been overstuffed with plot, understuffed with development? Spoiler alert, yes. We watch Above the Law. We do have to talk about one thing before we get into Above the Law, and that is Steven Skull News. <laughs> Steven Skull is banned from the Ukraine for the next oh. five years. Hey, Free Siegs. Just when I was worried that this podcast wouldn't seem sort of like urgent enough anymore because Contract to Kill did come out in December. None of the four films that are scheduled for 2017 have come out yet. But uh, yeah, banned from the Ukraine. For coming out and saying so many pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine, he thought it was a justified war there, mm. Crimea. And he's not a Russian citizen, right? Oh, he's got a passport, baby. Yeah. Really? He's got a passport. Because I think on Wikipedia it says he's a Serbian citizen. Ooh. Well, I mean, he's working on it. That's getting there. <laughs> Back during the Obama administration, the Russians wanted to have Segal be a uh, a Russian ambassador in like basically in and around hollywood they wanted to have him sort of be like an official russian representative and obama the guy who's so soft on what was it last time uh muslims pretending to be mexicans trying to escape in and out of the country yeah uh vetoed the idea huh yeah i mean i guess that's his most direct bloodline to any sort of culture which is russia like his dad was russian emigre from I don't know, three generations back. I think that's as close as tied any. Really? I had yeah. I had read that he was maybe this is just going to expand outwards. I had read that he was Irish Jewish. Yeah. Well, I think it's like Russian Jew though. Like I think it's like Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you know, maybe there's still a connection there. Or it could be the money. <laughs> Who really knows? <laughs> Although the speaking of Sagal's, you know, background, family, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting how so this film was actually supposed to be a Clint Eastwood role. Yeah, and it feels really Clint Eastwoody yeah. in a lot of ways. Well, they actually rewrote it to include parts of Seagal's backstory. Yeah, I did read that. Was he like just directly directed to like the pile of Clint Eastwood scripts, or was that like his? I wonder if like that was like I want to do a Clint Eastwood script. So the the thing that I read was that Warner Brothers had, I think, quote a pile of projects for Clint Eastwood. And so they're just like, ah, we're not going to use these Eastwood ones. Like, you can do it. And also for context, like, it would make sense because if you think about it, Eastwood was kind of would have been working on Unforgiven when this is coming out, which is a decidedly change in departure from, like, all those sort of, uh, yeah, Dirty Harry ripoffs or sequels or, you know, that sort of thing. So I can see why there would be a big pile of Clint Eastwood reject scripts at this point in history. True. And to be fair, at some points in Above the Law, it feels like there is a good movie hiding within all the stuff that happens in Mm. Above the Law, which we should probably start diving into. Above the Law, uh, 1989, I believe this. 88. uh, 88, this gem. Same year that Bloodsport came out. 
Yes. Ooh. Seagal's uh, first, uh, you know, major chance at anything, really. Yep. This is, like, straight up his first movie, I think, aside from, like, stunt work and that sort of thing. But he wasn't, like, let's build up new character, actor role. Like, he just right into leading man. So already kind of throwing down a bit of a gauntlet, mm-hmm. I'd say, doing that. But here's the thing is you can kind of tell this is maybe this man's first time on film. Sure. Just a lot of sure. tiny little moments where right. it's just like, oh, this person doesn't know how to do these things. And it's not, it's so funny because you see sort of these little ticks of just like, oh, this is an experienced person on film. But then you think back to contract to kill and it's like, oh no, those were just sort of ingrained. <laughs> yeah. I'd argue maybe his acting was even a little better here. Like really in hard to kill. Yeah. No, no. Sorry, above the law, above the law. Above the law. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's start this off. It starts off with, I think the the most clear sort of snapshots of Steven Seagal's childhood that you can find are all those all look real this all looks like uh yeah yeah starts off with him explaining that his family uh were Italian immigrants because his name is Nico Tessioni or something like that yeah very very Italian at a very young age he saw an old man doing Aikido is that how you pronounce it Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah Aikido uh, and just uh, flew to Japan and like actual shots of him studying in Japan yeah. with Aikido masters. Yeah. And again, just something that I think people should know, like Stephen Skull started off as a huge dork. All these pictures sort of show that he's just like kind of a dorkist who was really into Aikido. Like, you know, this is kind of an interesting point because like because I uh, kind of grew up with Steven Seagal, where like when these movies came out, I was, you know, like. 11 years old or whatever Mm -hmm. and so i even in spite of all this dumb stuff he's kind of done later on like he's always kind of been like a badass at heart but i mean you're right like karate kid you know like training martial arts up until very recently with the ufc and stuff like that like it was a dorky pursuit Mm -hmm. and so it's funny that like he's so i'm gonna say proud but that's too obvious but it's like he makes such a like a awkward crude effort to like push that stuff Mm -hmm. yeah the opening scene like especially because he seems to be over the opening credits like both demonstrating to a group of like sort of Mm. sort of leaders or like some sort of uh, people who are clearly deciding his mastery of uh aikido while also like teaching it like at the same time like there's a bunch of people like watching him and apparently are like trying to absorb whatever he's saying so he's like being taught while also being confirmed as one of the best it's like so tries to basically make it as noble and cool as it could possibly be in that sense and one of the great things about this opening shot of him sort of like in a dojo having people come up and like throw themselves at him so that he can sort of tumble them away uh is that there are no quick cuts it's Mm. not like contract to kill at all where he fought everybody sitting in a chair this is like actual there Mm. is demonstrable amount of skill here almost poetic that you what you were saying about the his role sort of in that opening scene of being both a teacher but also a student i i never thought about that but that's really really interesting just because like uh in order for him to derive any value from being in this exotic culture of course he has to you know like be the the fish out of water and that he's gaining all this you know eastern knowledge but also, like, he needs to be a badass and he needs to teach people. 
So like, yeah, it's interesting. I never thought of it that. Oh, way. that broken Japanese. Yeah, <laughs> man. And this episode for those uh, little bursts of language uh, change-ups, this may out contract to kill, contract to kill. There was a lot of him <laughs> knowing. Like, it started in that first scene where it's just there was a lot of scenes of him just only knowing a sentence of a language, yeah. yet the person is in front of them and he just sort of drops the line. <laughs> But then, I mean, over top of that, he's still explaining what happened to him. And this is sort of like where I could see Steven Seagal present day being like, oh, yeah, I was in the CIA. Because in this movie, when he was was recruited at the age of 22 to be part of a CIA operative team or something like that. And we, how do you explain this next scene? Because it seems... (laughs) I feel like this was a lot of the stuff that was stapled on because Steven Seagal was going to be part of it. Now is like, uh, how do we explain this? Uh, this guy went from Japan over to back to America, probably in a stop through of Vietnam. But how do we get him through all this? Like, we gotta, we gotta come up with some interesting backstory as to why he's back as a cop. Or- yeah, it kind of is almost tailored to his fighting style that first scene because it's like, if you consider that it was written for Clint Eastwood, like. One would safely say that that movie, if it was Clint Eastwood, there would be no martial arts involved at all yeah, in any sort of sense. So like, whereas Steven Seagal, like he's he's going to be doing that stuff because that's what he's kind of made his bread and butter on. So it, that's kind of necessary or else you'd be like, what the fuck is this cop doing all this martial arts stuff for? Like, yeah. you know, so that makes a lot of sense. And the Vietnam scene less so, though, because it really only sets up how we get to meet Henry Silva, who, holy fuck, <laughs> holy fuck. Uh, basically, it's a scene to just sort of demonstrate how shitty a person Henry Silva is in this movie as the main villain. But I think there's something even more significant. And we see it both in like that scene and also uh, a lot of stuff he does as a cop. It's that like, I'm not sure if it's like a like a opposition to authority or if it's just like uh generally like Steven Seagal wanted to show he's a rebel but like within the sort of organizations that he's in whether it's CIA or whether it's a cop he always needs to have people doing immoral things and so he can act against the system while still being for part sure of the system. for sure and I think that's like probably why they had that open. see I think that was probably a lot more central to the original Clint Eastwood script of this yeah that's incredibly dirty Harry there's a lot of it where it's there's like a funny juxtaposition to be made where the only reason why he gets mixed up into all the things that happen within the film is because he is operating above the law right. and beyond the law. And it never really comes back to hit him in a way that's like, oh, this is like a, a real sort of moment of like testing my character or anything like that. I'm just as bad as this person I've been trying to chase. It's just sort of like, a, oh, I'm I'm good because I'm above the law, but those guys are bad because they're above the law. And it, it just comes off as sort of like a limp noodle sort of like end where he's like, uh, nobody's ever been brought up on charges. Well, someone should have brought you up on charges for the things that you do early yeah. on in the film. But again, Vietnam, he watches Henry Silva threaten to cut off the hands and feet of someone that they've captured. I think just the feet. But oh, then- hands would presumably be sometime next after the feet. <laughs> Hey, and I love like the little details in this in this scene where Henry Silva and I have to assume like this was like him on set that day. He's like, I'm going to put him in a little pile over there in a pot. It's like, well, that's a gross little detail. And the entire time Steven Seagal's in the background, he's like, I can't take that. So he could just keep shaking his head and shaking his head being like, no, this isn't the right way. So uh, we'll also mention now, since we're getting into Henry Silva, we'll 
I think another big touchstone of what this movie is kind of going for, in addition to the Clint Eastwood stuff, is uh, the Manchurian Candidate. Mm. Uh, especially when one considers that Henry Silva is a literal old villainous cast member from the first one. I, there's a lot of like this sort of like uh, assassination of a political figure and like intrigue within the government that may or may not involve like espionage not revealed to the general public. Like that kind of stuff is very, very much the mentoring candidate to me. Definitely. So I and done think, so ham fistedly here. Yeah. Yeah. It was really like, <laughs> Especially since the Manchurian Candidate is like a really complex movie that like hits a lot of really weird notes. Definitely. It's one of my favorite movies. So like I think that it's like great because it's so absurdist and kind of confusing deliberately, yet you're still so engaged and you get it all. Whereas this felt more like uh, harder to understand, (laughs) even though it was like really, really simple. (laughs) They released it to some test audiences with that name harder to understand. It did not go over well. Too many syllables. <laughs> Funny man sharing candidate fact. Uh, it's a uh, murder she wrote as the mother, right? Yeah, Angela Lansbury. She was actually older than the actor. Sorry, she was younger than the actor playing her son. Yeah. Uh, really? Harvey something. Yeah. Um, Lawrence Harvey. Uh, yeah, the, the thing that I think that really obviously is the most linking point to that is the whole uh, assassination of the political figure, which really isn't a thing in it. For most of the movie yeah no definitely and yeah. i think that's one of these things with this movie that made it felt so confusing which is that it kind of had a bunch a of these yeah they crammed a lot in there for a movie with a lot of just staged fight sequences that like really didn't need to be crammed in there because they never tie into anything aside from like you know just kind of all the people that steven seagal across various diverse parts get to save <laughs> which is probably the clearest link to contract to kill in mm-hmm. terms of things is just like he wants throw, to save everyone you throw the all the plot at the wall and whatever seems to stick is sort of your your venture through the steven seagal narrative the the clint eastwood comparison is interesting just because uh something like dirty harry i feel like even though there is a bit of like a vigilante justice is sometimes necessary i feel like in dirty harry like he is still regarded as kind of a violent crazy dude totally unlike in this film where it's like before he does something that is uh acting against the military or like the cia or acting against what he's supposed to be doing as a cop he justifies that behavior so whether it's the torturing at the start or uh the bar fight scene where mm-hmm. he goes in and like you know, he's supposed to be on duty, but he's helping yeah. out uh, like Nona or whatever, you know? Yeah, and, his cousin or something. Yeah, and yeah. the only time that he actually starts brutally assaulting people is when like the audience knows that they're all sexist scumbags. I saw yeah. the back of her head. And then now the audience <laughs> is like, we're on your team. Yeah. Like now you can yeah. commit a crime. Yeah, basically. And uh, I would argue though, like, Clint Eastwood comparisons don't end there like in the narrative structure I think that they act quite similarly like they're both kind of got that stoic thing going on True. where like they they don't really range in emotions a lot they don't really get super angry and they don't really get super sad they always have this sort of constant tonality and then also he does the like Steven Seagal does the Clint Eastwood face like the just sort of Ugh. slight squint the like you know mouth tiny tiny agape always sort of scanning like almost robotically, it feels like he's almost channeling Clint Eastwood. It's as if he was super aware of how 
this was an old Clint Eastwood script. And in his mind, he's like, okay, I guess I kind of have to act like Clint Eastwood. But the thing that's interesting about that and the reason, the only reason I would say this is worth watching is if you have enjoyed sort of, or if you're curious about uh, Steven Seagal and where he came from, this movie, like just his screen presence is so awkward in so many of the scenes, like just in like the... Uh, not so much when he's trying to joke around with people with Pam Greer or things like that, which we do have to introduce at some point. Oh my God. Pam Greer. Talk about underutilizing. Like there are some great people. Free Pam Greer. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Pam Greer actually said that was one of her favorite roles. I saw that. Yeah. Why? <laughs> the quote really? was that like she got to act more, which sounds, it seems strange, but. Yeah. Like I got what she was saying. Cause I read that same thing too. And I got what she was kind of getting at which is that she kind of is given i think the almost the implication was i was given a really shitty role to play to so i kind of had to make it because she is good in it but she's good at doing a really stupid role that Mm. really is below her even though this is pre-jackie brown and any so she was kind of you know, this feels appropriate for her in 1988 but also i really like pam greer and she deserves better than this she deserves much better than this. And that's the thing is like, so we should get to the after Steven Seagal uh, objects to uh, Henry Silva's sort of treatment of prisoners in the CIA. He says, I'm out of here in the first instance of a lot of what's going to come up again and again and again, which is just sort of ADR inserted for no yeah, real reason other than to yeah, it make really it more and more weird. confusing as yeah. to what's going on. Uh, and you can tell that there is a lot of stuff that they're like, ah, oh, fuck, we need to make this more clear. So what if we have people talking during the most inopportune mu- moments yeah. and also over top of each other? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Steven Seagal is pulled off uh, this mission in the little hut that he's in by somebody, Fox, Agent Fox. His buddy at the agency. Yeah. It was just like, you get out of here. You got five minutes to get out of here. And he's like, no one from the hut come out because he's afraid that people are going to come out and try and kill him. And then you just hear in a, like the worst ADR line ever. I guess I quit now. <laughs> and it's Steven Seagal going, I'm out of this thing forever. It's like, where's he coming from? It's everywhere at once. But he's like off screen for like the last yeah. 10 or 15 seconds. Yeah. And then we move over to uh, we fade. We church. Star swipe over to the christening yeah, of his child with Sharon Stone. Yeah, yeah, they're they're doing that, and uh, we get a little taste of Sharon Stone. Who again, uh, if Pam Greer's role is thankless, her role is even more thankless. <laughs> but uh, basically, it's it's just a setup for the to show that he's a family guy with a baby. We get the general yeah. crux of who he's going to be. He's a family yeah. man who loves church yeah. because there's a priest that he really likes, and yes. there's a wife and a child that he really likes. Yes. Even though the child does not look like it comes from the two of them. No, not at all. So, yeah. Cut to now they're having like a reception for this and they're all outside. And this is where we meet Pam Greer. And uh, there seems to be various intersections of the community. There's like police officers. Then there are also like gangsters and like kind of local figures of that nature. They're getting into arguments. Then fucking Pam Greer walks in in this ridiculously late 80s outfit. And all of them are just like, wow, look at her. Like, they just all just become these slobbering dogs. And it was just like, that really set up what this movie is going to be for Pam Career, I think. (laughs) 
which is, is super unfortunate because her character arguably has a more interesting backstory in this, which is she is a black female cops in Chicago in the 1980s who has risen up the ranks enough and gone back and gotten her honors doctorate. Yeah, some sort of really impressive educational that she's now going on to become. She's going to be part of the D.A. or something like that. And this is, you know, in the cliche of the 80s. Uh, this is her last week on the force. <laughs> yeah. And uh, not only that, but like, so she's set up to be this really amazing woman. But then her basically her two roles in this movie are there to be belittled by like every male character around her where they just basically hit on her or, you know, sort of uh, make sort of goofy come ons that she sort of just goes, oh, you, you know, that kind of crap. <laughs> which or, Steven Seagal probably arguably makes the worst one, which is when he introduces his partner, Pam Greer, to his wife, Sharon Stone. He goes, oh, yeah, sometimes she comes into work in lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pam Greer says, stop that. She'll never let you come back onto the police force. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot of that. And then uh, basically her being protected by Steven Seagal and basically being told, like, stay in the car. Uh, don't go up here. Uh, I'm going to do this by myself. You wait back here. Like, just a lot. I wouldn't of just, save you if you weren't so pretty. Exactly. Like, just like clearly just uh, existing to be saved, which is really unfortunate because uh, like Pam Greer, like seriously kicked a lot of ass at one point, like yeah. in the seventies. And it's like, she's perfectly cast as like an action buddy. Like she could totally kick some ass and she just doesn't get the chance to. Here's really the thing. I think that the only reason Pam Greer is in that film, it's to make Steven Seagal look cool. Ooh. He has a black, attractive female partner. All the other cops in the force are these fat ass middle-aged white slobs. Very true. <laughs> and they're the two coolest people on the force. There's that scene where they're doing the uh like the sting operation at the meat packing thing. And one of the cops is like, ah, they made us, Nico. You're too pretty to be a meat packer. Like just like every attempt to show how he's like special. You know, he's part of the Italian community. He's got a, a black female partner. He's a good looking guy. It's just like they just constantly reminding you why you should like him and this is the first film that we've watched that has steven seagal's natural hair in it which does not benefit from late 80s sort of everything needs to be <laughs> slicked back no ponytail yet he no did ponytail. have a really fine head of hair in this movie though. oh yeah i mean he's like he's a good looking guy oh for sure i yeah. mean the other thing too is that he uh he's good looking and like virile which he was not at all yeah he's contract six to kill. five yeah, yeah. Like he, I give you, I give you what you conceded last week, which is he does look like he could kick a lot of ass. Yeah. Like sure. a lot. Yeah. And actually that, that kind of going back to what we were talking about before about, uh, the coolness or lack thereof of, uh, martial arts director of this film, Andrew Davis actually directed what's regarded as Chuck Norris's best film, Code of Silence, who was kind of like really the only other American martial arts celebrity before Seagal. Damn. Yeah, that guy Andrew Davis has had uh, quite the interesting kind of semi-storied career. Yeah. Uh, so I guess after this, uh, under siege, obviously yep. he got his hands in that, and then the Fugitive, which is like one of the better, if not top ten, like yep. action movies from the '90s. Like it's really good. And then kind of then that seemed to be his peak, and then yep. he sort of went back down. And I think his most interesting uh, late period work was uh. The Shia LaBeouf vehicle holes. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah. So, I mean, to go from this and like the fugitive and under yeah. siege to like 
holes is really that's a really interesting career yeah. trajectory yeah. which uh i don't know is that good i don't know it's bizarre yeah. like uh well, you don't see that happening these days very much but yeah fusion actually was nominated for best picture it was losing it was. to schindler's Ooh. list uh, didn't uh, tommy lee jones win something for it though he won like best supporting actor i think yeah that's probably best. I didn't kill my wife. I don't care. Peak Tommy Lee Jones, in my opinion. I loved him in Schindler's yeah. List. I don't know, Schindler. Seemed pretty risky. Now you're thinking of Ben Kingsley. <laughs> Talking about the role of Gandhi. <laughs> so, uh, I guess um, if we're to look at the next uh, sort of set of sequences, this is now where we begin to get Steven Seagal going full above the law because <laughs> he basically has a small exchange to basically get across that. His, there's one woman at his christening that isn't happy and he has to yeah, figure yeah, out why. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's this short exchange where, yeah, he's just making the rounds and then there's this, there's this woman here and it's his uh, aunt or something like that. And she's sad because her daughter's into like some sort of, uh, you know, drug problem and she's not going to school and she's not getting her grades. And she's uh <laughs> Seeing some hood. So this, I guess, just prompts him to just drop everything. Well, this is the thing. He's like, I'm on shift later. Like, he didn't get the day off for his kids. Right. He's doing it on company time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And there's like three different department heads across the city of Chicago here for his christening. And they're all like, yeah, I guess we can give him half time for today or something. (laughs) Yeah. It was. Yeah. So then that basically then leads to his uh, introduction to his above the law status where he goes into the bar and basically just whoops everyone's ass in the room while also kind of making snarky comments about how he knows that there's basically uh, prostitutes upstairs. And then just sort of everyone has their little snide remark and he kicks their ass or, you know, begins to try and fight him. Uh, Including the most weirdly manicured bartender I think I've ever seen on oh, film. Uh, yeah, his hair. He's got like a quaff pompadour that goes into a mullet, and his yeah. eyebrows were so perfect. I noticed the eyebrows too. He was like a well manicured man. Yeah, but in like a in a, in like a David Lynch yeah. sort of way. Like yeah. this isn't yeah. what real people look like. <laughs> yeah, I tried to get more info on him. He really didn't seem to be in anything of much import. I mean, go out at the top of your game. But worth noting, one of those people in the bar, uh, I don't know if either of you caught this, was uh, a Michael Rooker. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> A.K.A. Henry and Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, and <laughs> several other uh, kind of B-movie yeah. uh, horror. And uh, What is his and, line? He's got some like silly line that he says. I don't remember, but I remember hearing his voice, and I didn't even have to look it up. I'm like, that's fucking Michael Rooker in there, isn't it? <laughs> Post Henry, which is unfortunate because that feels like that's no, a pretty before 1988. No, Henry. Uh, I don't want to get too far off topic, but Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer actually was made in like 85, 80. Yeah. And because it was so violent and horrible, they just had the worst time trying to get it released. So it literally like it made all the rounds at all the film festivals and won some sort of acclaim. Oh. And but still, it was just so gruesome that they couldn't find anywhere to distribute it. And it really didn't hit the theaters until 88 yeah so it was so i mean yeah i I don't know they could have been coming out at about the same time i guess you're right but (laughs) it's still it felt like he deserved better than a one line extra sure sure and of course in the bar scene uh we get to see the patented him speaking a non-english language 
Yeah. Apparently he has to work some Italian into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, because he is Nico Tassioni or something yeah. like yeah, that. Yeah, if he should be able to speak any other language, that should be the one. Sure. Like, you know, he did set himself up to be an Italian character, which again, setting the precedent for uh, uh, sort of confusing. Not being white. Yeah, confusing. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty tame in terms of not being white, but it's also like he is not Italian in any way. But He's, like, step over Rachel Dozel. This is how you not become white. You do it over time and through filmography. Yeah, you test the waters with Italian. <laughs> yeah, I was almost like, he's like the opposite Ooh, it's of... so spicy. He's like the opposite of Prince, where, uh, like, no one's wondering what his uh, ethnic background is. They're just like, you're white, we know it. And he's trying to tell you, just like, no, I'm going to give you a little hint here. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bow to Asian people. I'm going to speak a broken Spanish. Like, like who, knows, who knows what race I might be? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is all really leading up to what we all come for for this scene, which is the first big ass whooping, which is, I think, what is it, like six, seven guys? I feel like he's going up there against. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, one at a time. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. You get, <laughs> are you going to take them all on? I mean, yeah. that's pretty difficult. Yeah. I don't know. Can you speak to anything about like the fighting style and like what exactly was so interesting to you at that time where you're like okay this guy's seriously kicking ass versus whoever else sure sure so i guess like uh the thing with aikido is that if you're against like a bold idiot running at you it mm-hmm. does kind of work because that's kind of what it's based on like kind of using the person's force against them but i mean if the person knows how to fight at all it's probably not going to work that well and so in all the sagalphones that's the whole thing that he just kind of stands there all cool and then they just run at him flailing and then he gets to do some sexy stuff <laughs> and i mean like his moves in uh the films is certainly a deviation from uh aikido which is kind of more like grappling and kind of neutralizing so like he'll kind of do some like you know razzle dazzle type stuff uh twist them around but then he'll like clothesline them or something which you would never actually do in aikido yeah neutralizes like putting it lightly like he uh <laughs> I mean, I was going to make the obvious joke, which is that uh, basically his his thing that allows him to operate above the law in his opinion uh, is a terrible massacre, which we'll get to. But I'm pretty sure the body count of that massacre is much lower <laughs> than his final <laughs> joke count in the movie himself. Like, I don't know. I got around like 12 to 14 all said and done. Like, he really goes at it pretty good. And he is clearly trying to murder these people. Definitely. But that so the brawl scene heads into him trying to save this is the it's almost like note for note a copy well like contracted kill sort of does a note for note thing with a contracted kill was the the lady waitress up yeah. upstairs with the two Mexican guys no no uh, uh middle middle uh, European guys playing Mexican guys yes. Nice. Yes, yes uh and in this one it's just you know another uh, Italian guy with that same sort of pompadour, coiffed pompadour into a mullet sort of hairstyle. Almost a hairstyle to make you hate them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and it was like, a, and this scene is like, it's almost like out of the uh, Ronald Reagan playbook about what to do when you're around drugs, which is sort of smash somebody's face into it who offered drugs to you and then throw them up against a sink. And I think the only thing noticeable, notable about this scene is, do you guys catch a glimpse of the girl's panties i didn't because good eyes (laughs) 
I had to rewind it quite a few times to see them. No, I rewound it once because she's wearing like full bloomers. It's like, <laughs> wow, it's the unsexiest pair of underwear ever. Like it's maybe they just wanted to show that she's like a good girl or something. The, she's as good as a crack user can be. <laughs> well, actually, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up the crack thing. Yeah. So uh, that, it's crack, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the. The other film the, that uh, Andrew Harris Davis directed, uh, the Chuck Norris one, yes. it's also about the, the crack academic, uh, uh, epidemic. And yeah. like, it was kind of like right when it was, well, not starting, but right when the media was fabricating the story yeah. about it starting. And so like, yeah, it was kind of a little ahead of its time. You guys, we got pauses podcast. I have to submit a pitch for the crack academic, the new ABC sitcom. With, that uh, would be a funny skit. <laughs> yeah, guy just like, like blazes up and he's like writing mm-hmm. like crazy. Yeah. So uh, to be fair, this above the law isn't really anything to do with crack. Like it's oh no, not that's on, just no. one showing it on. Which again is also though a perfect example of something that feels like this like loose end that was never tied up. Like you felt like these sort of mobsters at this bar who's gonna have more to do with, but really they just serve as like leading in into the next plot point, which is then the the church and like all this stuff going on at the church. Whereas like, he's already sort of beat up everyone in this bar. Whereas the only guy that sticks around is the mullet pompadour guy. <laughs> but like, he seems to be like really below the like level of importance of all the other hoods he gets involved with. And you're like, Oh, that guy from the bar, <laughs> and like all the other scenes, like he sticks around for everything, whereas none of the others do, even though he sort of violently assaults them worse, especially yeah. the guy in the room. And uh, I just found it really weird that then the guy from the bar, like the bartender would The come bartender back. was integral to the assassination plot of a U.S. senator, which is something you really don't see. Coming. Yeah, like he was just attending bar and it really felt like either like drop this guy this scene. And you would think with his days of attending uh, bar and then also doing terrible ADR over top of his because this is the other thing I don't know if this was a trope in 80s action movies which is just like you have everybody talking over this scene where it's just like hey what are you doing why did you come to my bar this fucking guy and it's just over top of like all these beats which now are so choreographed in films that like everything punches with as much sort of like impact as possible but in this one it's just sort of like there's a man sort of taking up one third of the frame who's flipping people over. And then you just have ADR from someone whose mouth you can't see moving being like, Hey, I thought, and it's especially bad in the scene where a bunch of gangsters try to shoot up Seagal's car. Eh. And then he leads them into a, a white man playing an Indian person playing a, someone who follows the Sikh religion Eh. who operates a convenience store. (laughs) And it's the best part of the movie because, Steven Seagal is pushing all these people into this man's wares. But there's a little commentary by this man talking about, I came to America because everyone told me it was better. But you fucking Americans, you're all the same. (laughs) And all this stuff. And he's just got like this little tiny like commentary to himself. And then he does have one legitimate point, which is Seagal doesn't have to crash a man through the front window afterwards. Well, not at all. Literally <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but before you do it, so it's like heading into slow-mo and you hear just, what are you doing? Don't go through that window. <laughs> and then they go through the window. It's been like going in slower and slower mo until it's in slow-mo. But that one 
sort of Indian 7-Eleven owner's voice rings true. It's Also, I like the fact that it was apparently a 7-Eleven, but based on the way that the production design drew up as 7-Eleven, it looked like like a like a general store from 1947. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we got in. We got roots. There's like a fruit cart in it. <laughs> <laughs> we got yams. Perfect for cannon. I like some corn pone with that beaten. I've come from India. I was told you Americans. <laughs> I think the whole thing was shot in like 80 days or something. So it could be they just rushed through everything. I kind of feel like 80 days was enough for this film. It might have been less than that. I think, I think there's a bit of both. I think that ADR was definitely more common in the 80s because now everything's ADR, right? So uh, it's understandable. Now it's kind of part of a director's craft. Like everyone was showing that stupid Hugh Jackman video of him doing Wolverine. Yeah. And it's like, but clearly now that's a part of his training is to like know how to do ADR properly. Mm. Whereas it feels kind of in its infant stages here. Mm. But also like it was very clearly uh, not exactly the biggest prestige picture. Like sure, the names in the cast were like noticeable names to me and others. but based on where they were in their careers, like Pam Greer was kind of in the gutter. Uh, Sharon Stone had not yet made like total recall or basic instinct or any of that stuff. So she was still kind of going up. Steven Seagal was no one. Uh, the director had not done the fugitive. Like they're all appropriately, you know, C plus, you know, and the problem is not that they do ADR. It's just, they do ADR on top of each other in a way that's just sort of like a, Oh, maybe people will find this funny if we throw this in here. Like, it's a very over-edited sort of thing. Oh, so I guess you're not a Robert Altman fan. <laughs> well, the, did you guys read, like, the story about, like, the agent kind of pushing this movie through? Kind of. Like, I glanced. Yeah, I'm sure you probably have a better understanding of yeah, it. Yeah, so um, I guess Seagal was friends with this guy, Michael Ovitz, who was, like, the head of uh, CAA Creative Artist Agency. And so uh, Ovitz said that he was like a student of Seagal's, although Seagal uh, denies this. Uh, he says, what did he say? He says, uh, coming from my lips, I don't teach him the martial arts on a formal basis. Michael does love the martial arts and we talk about it all the time. So he, although he does say that uh, they're very close and that I'm like a guru to him. So anyway, this guy was, I guess, like, apparently Christ. like the most powerful agent in Hollywood. And all the cast and crew were like, who is this guy? And why is he the star of our film? And they're just like, don't, don't fuck with him. Because I mean, like the most powerful person in Hollywood is like, this is his boy. <laughs> yeah, it definitely comes off that way. Yeah. I will for sure say that. Uh, I wonder what the trajectory of that relationship was, because it's pretty clear that Steven Seagal had a couple shots, right? Like Under Siege is a pretty big deal in terms of who they got and the budget and you know, same director, uh, but at a certain point, there is a definite change in time. And I'm wondering how much it coincides with that gentleman right there. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't read the like the numbers in terms of, like the earnings of this film. Like, I think it did OK. Uh, I see, it. I can't see doing like terribly. Like, mm. It's all the kind of predictable notes of an action movie from this time. Yeah. I, I could see it making a decent amount of money. And I mean, most action movies, like you don't necessarily like look at superhero movies now. Like a lot of superheroes are not necessarily huge A-list stars like Henry Cavill or something like that. Mm. 
So I could see an action movie around this time, not necessarily cleaning up, but doing all right, making mm-hmm. back its budget. Well, I think I'd I'd seen that it was about a four million dollar budget, and it made back about fifteen million. So yeah, that's not bad. It's enough to launch a career. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's move on to the next big scene, uh, which I think kind of is just the explosion at. Ugh. That scene was strange. Very, very strange. And it's setting up a lot of different plot points. And we're glancing over an entire part of the film, which seems super unnecessary, which is that the priest that uh, Steven Seagal really likes is, uh, is housing some refugees, is housing some uh, illegal yeah. immigrants. Yeah, South or Central American uh, refugees somehow and- gotten into the country. And then some of them are also plotting to kill a senator, which it comes out at the end. Because the, the priest is given that truth serum. It's a, it's a clusterfuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> surprising amount going on. Anyway, Seagal has pissed off the mob, which he doesn't realize is super CIA related. Yeah. And has a bigger plan going on. And there's a, this bomb scene, which keeps the... It starts off with like a, a, a very, very nice uh, monologue for the priest who's about to die. Uh, the same one who christened his baby. And uh, the camera keeps coming back to this one guy who looks like my dad in the 80s. <laughs> and just sort of like this. There's, you know, there's like two or three cutbacks to this person. And then it, the bomb goes off. And this guy, Steven Seagal, heroically is carrying out like a child. And But one thing I did find interesting about that is uh, it's not like when shots of like bombs going off in places are done today and i think this is like a post 9-11 thing which is whenever like there's a shot of a bomb going off and people trying to rush out it's shown as everybody helping each other out in like sort of like instant camaraderie in this there are people pushing each other over trying to get out of a church that's an interesting detail yeah i did notice that too and of course, all the stunts in this movie have the also uh, very cliched 80s thing of seeing the exact same explosion from about 15 different angles, <laughs> yeah. which, I mean, is understandable because this was what that is for anyone for the layman is uh, because those pyrotechnics were so expensive at the time and there was no CGI. You literally just wanted to get your money's worth. You wanted 15 angles of this because God damn it, you paid a lot of money for this and you're going to get your fucking money's worth. So that too was also kind of a funny dated thing, but yeah, that pushing people over thing is interesting too, yeah. especially since you contrast it with Seagal, who seems to be the only person operating on the sort of like post nine 11 idea. Cause he's not just helping the priest out. He is also like helping people to their feet and sort of escorting them out as he's still in this just recently exploded church. <laughs> like he's literally helping people as soon as the bomb goes off. Yeah. And he's the only one doing that. Everybody like there yeah. are scenes where you can see like people's hands on like women's backs and pushing them down in the yeah. views. People getting stomped on. It's a very, very odd. It's probably the best scene in the movie. And it's 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 a very, very disconcerting one for, I think, all the wrong reasons. Yeah. I feel like that bomb scene is uh, a good example of like all the hand holding that takes place in the film. Because, like, they have that bust where they find the tiny pieces of C4 in, like, the engine or whatever. Yeah. And then so it's just, like, just in case you didn't think C4 was bad, now it's really bad. Because <laughs> they killed this nice guy with it. Oh, that should also be mentioned, which is we did gloss over one other scene, which oh, is God, the, yeah. the, uh, the reason why they did that whole meat packing plant uh, sting, which is to somehow intercept these explosives. 
which I'm sorry because you're going to have to step back a minute. But are we not going to mention when Steven Seagal fights the guy from the roof of the car? Because uh, yeah, yeah. that mean, was an insane sequence. He literally is implying that. Have you ever seen that Kids in the Hall skit with uh, my pen? And it's like Bruce McCullough has lost his pen and some guy is taken out of the bank. And in a joking fashion, he grabs oh, onto yeah, his yeah. car. But then at certain cuts, like you could see he had zero, like neither of his hands were actually holding onto the car and he had clearly just been glued to a car. And that scene really recalled that. Like he like really was gripping this one guy's arm really hard and he was just sort of moving and jiggling around. But I'm like thinking in my head, I'm pretty sure he's just like his other hand is not gripped to the car in any way based on how he's moving. And he's clearly just flailing on this roof of a car and it would just get played as so brazenly insane. <laughs> I like so, how the guy in the passenger seat, he they specifically have him saying, I ran out of bullets. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Yeah. But anyways, this scene is also worth mentioning aside from that hilarious piece of stunt work. Uh, the fact that uh, it also introduces this whole C4 element, yeah. which is so not only did you note that C4 was blatantly laid out, it was even blatantly laid out a scene before yeah. where they found the C4 and he's just like, I don't know what the smell that is. And I know what this is. This is C4. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure he even goes like government grade explosive. Yeah. Like he delivers a specific line for even if he didn't know what C4 was. I know what it blows like. I know what it smells exactly. like. <laughs> But okay, so yeah, he the the church that Seagal likes is blown up because later on it's revealed because there's a guy who is a senator's aide, something like that. And as if it was like this is how politics works, which is if if, if a senator is assassinated, then his aide takes the thing. So let's eliminate that aide as well. That's not how it works, but uh, that is sort of like the the sort of the. Rosetta Stone that allows them to figure out, okay, no, they're trying to assassinate the senator because yeah. they assassinated the, his aide. Not to mention an even more like clearly laid out scene in which he follows the mob out of their restaurant, tails them really clumsily, and then they go to the church and they just sort of like walk around the church and lay flowers there. And it's like, why the <laughs> fuck did you go there? Like, like if you know you're going to blow that place up, like, why are you just going there to just play some fucking flowers like Why it was really silly it's fine i never even yeah. thought of that yeah but it's also but then it was also to clarify the mafia guys are going to be doing something in the church like it was almost certainly spelled out and this is the the bigger problem with this film is just there's too much plot and so there's so many of these little scenes where it's just you know you get this because this is going to be important later on and so it only comes together completely, I would say, in the last four minutes of the film, wherein uh, Seagal sort of has figured out the entire plot was to assassinate a U.S. senator who is, up until the end of the film, is completely unnamed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really wrapped up like a stepdad wrapping Christmas presents, like just so clumsy, like, fuck, barely even holding together. Man. It's not, yeah, like, it's like, it's not like an action film today, which sort of is like, the last 15 minutes are sort of relegated to like all the good wrap up stuff. This is like the sort of climax of the action happens at like minute one hour, you know, 26. And then the film is done at one hour, minute 28 or something like that, where it's just like, yeah, for sure. I'll talk to you guys about Vietnam or whatever. Like that's, I mean, if we are talking about the writing of the film, obviously, yeah. 
we have to mention that uh, Sagal co-wrote the film. Now, is that true? Because I kept checking it out, and I keep seeing places where he is listed and places where he is not listed. Oh. On certain releases of the movie, he's listed as a writer. On other ones, he's not. Huh. Interesting. Uh, there w- I did come across some stuff about like him not being credited for his writing in certain things. It could be maybe, uh, this is a little too insidery, but maybe he's just not in the guild. So maybe, maybe. like certain editions of the movie can't be included because not in the Writers Guild. Or well, yeah, that was the other thing I was going to say is like the Writers Guild is pretty onerous about this sort of stuff. Like they, maybe not as much in the 80s, but uh, definitely today, like they uh, they'll go to strike over anything. Those fucking pussies. True. Uh, Hot take. <laughs> putting you on blast. Found a uh, funny anecdote about uh, the guy who plays the drug lord, uh, Tony Salvano. And so uh, the director thought that like he wasn't intimidating enough. And he's like, you know, can you can you win us over? And so uh, he attacks Seagal in the audition and tried to break a chair over his back. (laughs) And he's like, you got the pot. You got the goods, kid. As an interjection, like, I think that this is a valid thing just to say at any time. But I was a little disappointed in the fact that this movie was so much uh, gunplay and yeah. not enough martial arts yeah. when like this guy's supposed to be like this great martial arts guy. Mm-hmm. And it was like, why is there so much like gunplay? Like I want to see him just kind of whooping guys asses yeah. with his fighting style. And I think again, I think that goes back to the whole Clint Eastwood script. Cause there's probably a lot of like, you know, goofy gunplay scenes written into those movies because we know that Clint Eastwood isn't going to be doing any hand to hand, but I found that really disappointing. I was hoping that he would do a little bit more of his, Aikido, you know? Yeah. Well, no, that's an interesting point. And like, like in the films that followed, uh, like the ones in sort of like the peak Seagal years, uh, at least in my opinion, like, I mean, there is way more fighting. Yeah. Like I remember that about Under Siege. Yeah. So I think it could just be that like, I mean, that wasn't a big part of like American action films. Yeah, I guess so. Because I mean, even on the Wikipedia page, it lists this film as the introduction of uh, Aikido to American cinema. Well, it's not a super, like, no one really had has or is doing it in movies as a fighting style now or ever, I don't think. No. Uh, Did you guys see that story about, uh, like, the, uh, like, fighting demonstration that he put on for, like, the, like, uh, film execs? No. So, I guess, like, they were kind of, like, on the fence about, like, him as an actor or, like, you know, like, exactly what this uh, Aikido thing is. And so uh, he like fought a bunch of dudes or whatever, and they were all blown away. But what they didn't know was that it was all staged and that like it had all been kind of like pre-choreographed and it wasn't just like Seagal kicking ass. It was like his students. Yeah. And actually, apparently a bunch of people in the film are his students. That makes sense. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people who take the falls exactly as as they're supposed to when they come and attack him. In various ways, which are all just sort of like running and punching or... Yeah, exactly. It's like the, Sort of the, awkward kicks. Yeah, like how can I attack you in a way that you can spectacularly destroy me? Or it's a lot of like, let me put all my forward momentum into this fist that is aiming at like the top right yeah. corner of yeah. your shoulder. And oh no, I missed by a hair and you flipped me. Like it's, it's sort of like more altering the trajectory of a meteor more yeah, than yeah. like... Uh, actually doing anything of damage but uh let's continue on with the film because we do need to get through this <laughs> and i feel like so there's a there's a long stretch of this film where uh oh no there is one scene <laughs> i want to talk about oh, which okay. is so weird so 
after Seagal sort of tipped off that the FBI is involved with this gang that, you know, uh, has been importing C4 or something like that, he then corners one of the agents, the main agent who told him to, uh, to back off this case or whatever, in a scene where I feel like there is a deleted scene beforehand where he corners him in a car park and he holds up a gun and he says, what were you doing? You know, uh, cheating on your wife. Don't you know sleeping with a 15-year-old yeah. is illegal yeah. in some states? Yeah, he catches him in a crime that we never see him committing. Yeah, and it's not like... like It's so strange because they're in like a commercial car park. First of all, like there's no living situation around there, especially not one that you could go privately see a 15-year-old at. And two, it's just... It's like a hard cut to the scene where Seagal just says, hey, you, like, is he doing this? Is he calling him out as a pedophile so that no one comes around or anything like that? Or is it just like, did he actually catch this I think FBI? It's, like, it's like the bar scene where it's like, there has to be no room for doubt that this guy is a piece of shit. So yeah. when I beat him up in, the, like, in a completely unprovoked way. Like, yeah, it's I, cool. I absolutely, absolutely agree. Yeah, because I mean, you're right. It's so rudely inserted into it and it's like yeah. why is this necessary and especially since that character up to that point was basically the role of the police chief in the dirty harry movies yeah. which is just like <laughs> you gotta do things by the book <laughs> screw your book yeah. no you gotta do things by the book screw your book so he basically screw your book like you do a 15 year old yeah. yeah so he was like uh, a contrarian but he wasn't like a irredeemable bad guy so that scene really had to elevate that yeah <laughs> you know it'd be interesting it'd be interesting to uh, figure out what percentage of dialogue in a Steven Seagal film is uh, used to further the story and what percentage is used to make Seagal look cool and good? Mm. Like, there's so mm -hmm. many story elements where it's like, yeah. like that whole C4 thing and he's got to rattle off this monologue showing yeah. all this stuff that he knows. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the other thing that I feel is also worth noting, I think we glanced over it, though I'm not super sure on the timing of this scene, so before we had the convenience store killing, he also gets cornered like outside his car by a couple of guys and basically he beats them up. He does his Aikido thing. But then there's a couple like uh, people watching him beat him up and there were two black guys and one white guy and they appeared to be fraternizing with each other. <laughs> and then the white guy comes up and he's just like, hey, you just beat up all my friends. I'm going to beat you up now, even though he just saw him beat up like five people. And then he gets taken out. And then the two black guys are standing there. And Steven Seagal just says, like, oh, no worry about me, brother. Like, he tries to be, like, Evonics. Like, just silly Evonics. <laughs> and they're just like, and then they're just like, hey, don't worry about it, man. Hey, that brother's tough. Like, they're, like, kind of getting into it, too. But also, I didn't get it because they appeared to be having a conversation with that third guy. <laughs> and he just basically murdered his friend in front of them. And there's another interesting point where the four guys come and sort of assault, like, empty a bunch of rounds into his car and then he goes and takes them all he he uses one gun to take them all down blah 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 but then they keep cutting to different people looking out in different uh, vantage points around the neighborhood and there's one woman who clearly has a massive tumor over her eye that has just swollen over yeah it's it's really distracting and then like at first i thought was this like sort of another casualty from the bombing incident because uh, one is Steven Seagal's either mother or stepmom or not stepmom, uh, mother-in-law also has a patch over her eye yeah. later on in the film. Hmm. But it's just like, it's a massive like tumor mass. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's very distracting. Yeah, I do remember that. Uh, I think we're also like this whole line of the way we're talking about this movie is also addressing a big problem with it. None of none of us like when we're talking about this movie, we're talking about how crazy all the in-between scenes are. But then it's like, and then he's fighting, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like his fighting should be the thing that we're all dying to talk about. Right. <laughs> yeah. But like, we don't want to because it's so either just the Akito run at you or it's gunplay. Mm. And it's like, fuck, like, I don't care about him doing gunplay. Like I was saying to you before, like I want to see him do like actual choreographed fighting. And I think that's another problem with this movie, which is it's not enough. It doesn't deliver a lot of the goods in terms of just the fighting sequences. Don't worry. It's coming. (laughs) I still have faith. So where do we go from here? The FBI has, he realizes that somebody higher up in the FBI or even the CIA, I believe has been coordinating these attacks. Oh, and then there's this completely sort of off the wall scene. So uh, after after sort of taking the CIA or the FBI agent who has told them to get off this case and he tells them, no, I'm not going to. Now you go jump in a lake, literally. Yeah, he jumps, stops sleeping with 15 year old girls, jump in a lake. Yeah, but he's also like instructing him to jump in the lake and saying he's going to shoot him if he doesn't do it. Well, he's already getting in his car and driving <laughs> away. But the best part is someone ADR'd in a line. The only time that ADR works is when the car's pulling out and the guy looks back to see if he really has to finish the scene. And they ADR'd in. Yeah, get in the fucking lake. Yeah. <laughs> and then he does. And you can see him hop down from the pier into a mat over top because you can see his head pop up again. And then he jumps back Yeah, there. that was a weird scene. <laughs> Anyways, Steven Seagal has to find out more information about which CIA agent is probably doing requisitioning all the C4 by way of Jersey Mafia. And so he goes to the only place, Chicago Mafia. So he goes to the only place (laughs) uh, that has access to the Internet in 1988, which is like a consumer electronics show. (laughs) Makes sense. Wave Wave of the future. Yeah. I mean, that's just another example for him to show off his broken language skills. I think it's safe to say that we could jump, though, to the, I guess, big set piece of the movie, which is the whole hotel interrogation scene. Yeah. Uh, Which, I guess, to me, is the last draw for me in Pam Greer. I thought that that scene was like, fuck, how could you underuse that so badly? Where he literally just is like, stay in the car. Like, he's commanding a dog. Like, he's like, stay in the car. Don't come in here. Whatever you do. Just like, but I can do it. I'm like a police person. <laughs> stay in the car. Stay in the fucking car. Yeah. And then they go up and basically like she has no chance to redeem her abilities at all. She just ends up getting no. blown away. Like it's just like, fuck, like at least give her a chance to try. Uh, but I mean, that's where we get a reintroduction after a really long break of Henry Silva back in the frame. Like he's not in that movie for a huge chunk of it until that no. very end. And uh, he whips out his needles and begins going at that uh, that priest who somehow has tenuous connections to a senator. Yeah, didn't really understand that. But uh, Henry Silva does have access to a truth serum. As one would expect. Which is what he was using back in Vietnam in the very beginning of the film. He's using it again on this guy. But this guy is taking it, this priest who was originally helping uh, Central American people immigrate into america but 
Yeah, but now is just sort of also trying to assassinate a senator. I don't think he was trying. I think he just had information that someone had somehow in that cadre of people uh, disclosed information to that guy that he knew about the assassination happening. Thus, he would be able to prevent it. So they needed to murder him so that he couldn't leak the information that this super deep cover CIA were going to murder this guy a la the mentoring candidate or the Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. Jesus. That... Okay. Oof. Okay. Get it? <laughs> I just assume that that priest was in on it in some way because there's no, there's nothing in this film to build it up either way, is there? No, because there's, but you also have to consider like this is the, the polarity of Steven Seagal. Like the priest is a priest, so he's not going to be a bad guy. Mm-hmm. All the bad guys are clearly defined as bad guys. This guy is defined as a good guy at the beginning of the movie. So he's just like, He's given the truth serum because he seriously doesn't want to divulge the information he knows. But Henry Silva already knows this, which, again, is another thing I don't get, which is that if you already know that this guy knows, why do you have to get him to take the truth serum? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You're already operating so above the law. (laughs) Because it seemed like they were going to keep him alive if he had not told anybody. But, like, why not just eliminate the priest if the priest knows about this plan? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, they Seagal, who has been relieved of duty after uh, after capturing or not after uh, kidnapping that uh, talking with the CIA agent, yeah, uh, FBI agent because CIA, uh, yeah. Um, then what happens next? Seagal tries to intervene there. Pam Greer is shot, uh, and again. This is an interesting thing that I think could only have happened in 1988. I'm wondering if that was supposed to be a big twist at the time is he's so torn up that he thinks Pam Greer was dead because he saw her got shot, but it clipped the vest like a Kevlar vest, which I guess at the time would have been like a big, like was because it, it's treated as like a big twist. Like, oh no, she survived because she had her vest on. Mm. Yeah. And didn't do any research into that. Unfortunately, um, like bulletproof vests have been around for a while. Yeah, I think I've seen them in earlier things, for sure. Um, no, but I also Was think- it possibly because she normally shows up in the office in lingerie that everyone could tell she's wearing a vest or not? Yeah, I don't know. In but this case, they just assumed, oh, you know, that... My honest guess is I think it was just an opportunity for Steven Seagal to show his emotional range, which is to just sit in a room and uh, mourn over his partner and look sad and look See, at him look like, sad. Exactly. So this is another example that the only reason she got shot was to show that he might be a tough guy, but he's got a heart. He's got a heart. He listens. He knows what it's like. One thing we do have to bring up before we get to the very end of this, and we are rapidly approaching the end, but... Um, Hustling the finish line just like this movie. <laughs> <laughs> One of the beautiful things about this film is there are... And I can't tell if this is just because Steven Seagal is six foot five, but most of the shots are shot of him, like, sort of the chest up when he's walking. Mm, but anytime yeah. it's not... You can see how nervous he is because he has no idea what to do with his hands. Mm. He keeps like clutching them or like putting them like flat out. Like it's sort of like Alec Baldwin and 30 Rock where he's like, I've forgotten how to walk. <laughs> and but then when finally there is a shot where he has to go approach the computer lady who's going to help him hack into the CIA to things. He does it with both of his hands straight up under his armpits with the thumbs out. Like this is a cool way of doing things. <laughs> and like a super casual, he's got a leather jacket on, but he's got his hands stuffed into his armpits being like, 
Hey, he's what time are you off tonight? This in-studio impression really helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting video in here soon. It, it doesn't translate over radio. It's, it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, we gotta get that 8K. That's why you have to watch this film. <laughs> see the amazing body language yeah. of the Seagull. Um, so I guess now we can safely get to the Pam Greer's okay. Uh, his, he's basically revealed the fact that something really bad is going to go down. And now we build to the final set sequence, which is this senator who, again, we don't know why he's bad or what he's done to deserve being assassinated. But he's he been just, targeted by the CIA. Yeah, he just looks like a pretty clean cut senator type. Uh, which is funny that senators have been cast the exact same way throughout all of movies. Yeah, history. he looks they look the exact yeah. same now as they did in the 60s. As yeah, they do today. Exactly. And uh, so he, I guess, is is found by the the cadre of uh, he's running some FBI, sort of CIA thugs. Yeah. And uh, they lure him down to the basement. And it is the only scene in which Seagal seems to have any sort of uh, weakness revealed. Oh, no, 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 because he was checking it out beforehand. Then Fox, his old mentor, uh, catches him up on the roof. And he's like, not even you can make a shot like that because he's going to try and assassinate. What's his face? Right. Silva. And then the two of them turn around. They're going to try and get out. And this is sort of like the the climax of the film is sort of this car park shootout, which, first of all, I think all those guns going off would have deafened all of them if it's like an enclosed oh, car park like that. But then uh, Seagal sort of drives in between people, eventually drives over the guy who, aven- who at the beginning of the film, his car, he jumped on top of his car and yeah. hung onto his neck. A callback. Yeah, yeah, a nice callback. But then um, finally escapes, and then he's just surrounded by CIA agents, I'm assuming? Sure. They, they, it seems because like they he gives up pretty easily. FBI and CIA almost interchangeably. Yeah. yeah, I'm having kind of the same problem here, and I think that's... Yeah. Uh, also worth noting is the scene in which he drives his car literally through the wall of the car park and drops the uh, yeah, guy so off onto like the above ground train tracks in Chicago. Yes. And, and then there's a, then a future shot, like a like a sort of lingering establishing shot of just the car jutting out <laughs> from the car but park. But that's also a perfect moment to mention the the music in this film which is like there's no like real score there's just sort of like stings of like coarse distorted guitars and then saxophones and like when the guy falls from you know eight stories up onto the tracks it's like a wail of it's it's a it's a very beautiful saxophone tribute to a to a villain that we've gotten to know um and then (laughs) r.i.p R.I.P. And then, so we're we're at the very end of the film where Henry Silva's finally captured Seagal. And this is interesting because Silva injects uh, the true serum into Seagal for the first time ever just because he wants to for fun or something like that. Mm. Uh, And then Seagal starts in probably his best acting in the film, starts faking like some sort of like drug overtaking him or something like that. And then when Silva comes, and punches, it does the two-handed punch over him. That actually broke Seagal's nose. That take broke his nose, yeah. And um, so you can see, like, there's a, there's, very, there's a very surprised expression on his face afterwards. That's all real, huh. which is really cool. Like, that's yeah. a, uh, and, like, probably a lot of that blood leaking down his face afterwards is probably pretty real. Wow. Probably his best piece of acting in the whole thing. <laughs> 
All because Henry Silva, who at that point had been in the industry for probably 30 years, broke his nose. Uh, yeah, at least. Yeah. Manchurian like, candidate is early 60s and this is like I, 80s. Yeah. Like yeah. he'd been around 59, I want to say. Yeah, probably. Ish. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. You uh, know, out of all of like the articles and reviews and stuff like that, I read of above a law. Manchurian candidate not mentioned once. Really? Because I not honestly. A single time. Yeah, next to the obvious Clint Eastwood, which is not even uh, metaphorical, it's just straight up an industry thing. <laughs> I would say that's the most direct thing that I saw because oh, sure. it involves uh, uh, flashbacks to a war. Obviously, Manchurian candidate wasn't Vietnam, it was Korea, but the same idea, which is to establish the meanness of something from before. The assassination of a political figure. And uh, the use of Henry Silva to me is pretty red and like pretty oh, obvious. Yeah, I mean, the comparisons are unavoidable. And I mean, it's amazing that like I didn't run across a single person yeah. mentioning them. It's very strange. Yeah, I almost wonder if people didn't want to sort of give it that much credence. Maybe, you know, maybe it took a 2017 podcast to give it that much. <laughs> there you go. Anyways, guys, uh, the end of the film. Nothing really happens. He just gives his account of being in the CIA and that sort of trails off. Yeah, some special prosecutor comes in. He gets a thank you. Basically, all that happens is he's guaranteed he's not going to prison, which is nice and comforting. (laughs) And even that is sort of more just assumed. It's not really spelled out. But yeah. What do you think of the film? Is it worth watching as an action film, as a Steven Seagal film? Like, would you ever recommend somebody watch this? Uh, as an action film, I'm hesitant. But if you're a Steven Seagal fan, I mean, it's it's his first one. You got to give it that. And there is like, I mean, yeah, it's a lot of thankless acting, but there's a lot of interesting stunt casting in there. And I was kind of happy to see all these faces. I'm I, I don't know. It's just a solid straight down the middle kind of movie for me. It's a C, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, five out of ten kind of deal. So, I mean, if you're if you're a Seagal fan. I would certainly recommend this before our last movie. So <laughs> do with that what you will. I didn't think it was great. I didn't think it was terrible. Yeah. I agree. Like it, it's definitely not a great film. Uh, I don't think it like it's merit like stands on its own, but I think like as I guess, first of all, like you were saying, if you're a Seagal fan, it's cool to see where it came from. And also like, if you're like a action film nerd, like, I mean, you know, came out the same year as Bloodsport. So, I mean, it kind of gives you a sense of like, uh, like martial arts in Hollywood films. It's kind of like in its, you know, early stages. So it's like an interesting document, but not necessarily a good movie. Yeah, I like that good document. I yeah. got that same impression. Um, one thing that was interesting was uh, over the course of this podcast, you guys kept on saying how Seagal is above the law. That he uh, is doing these illegal things, but the law doesn't apply to him. And it's interesting because the the final line of the film mm-hmm. is poetically like, whenever you have a group of individuals beyond any investigations who can manipulate the press, the judges, members of Congress, you're always going to have those who are above the law. Not one CIA agent has ever been accused, much less tried, of any crime. You guys think you're above the law? Well, you're not above mine. So it's kind of funny that in his mind, like it's these people who are these kind of like corrupt individuals working within a just system who the title is implicating. But if you think about it, the movie's kind of like indicting. Both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
I have to assume he's kind of oblivious to that. I think so, yeah. Yeah. It's such a simplified view of what's going on. Yeah. And especially of what he's just done, which is like he's murdered some people. He's yeah. murdered a lot of people in this film. I'm pretty sure my final count was like 13 or 14. That's a good, that's a good number. More than yeah. the church bombing, which I think was seven. <laughs> so Seagal wins this round. Uh, for me, I would say that this is not a, a worthwhile endeavor into action films. But if you're interested to see Seagal before he sort of crystallized his persona, this is a good one because he is just so... In all of his like real acting scenes, there's an awkwardness in sort of like uh, he just seen, he comes off as a dweeb. Um, it's especially evident in that first bar brawl scene where he's like he has to go up and sort of like obnoxiously knock somebody like sort of tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, have you seen this girl? But he's trying to do it in a cool way. But it just comes up as like a like a guy who's like super insecure trying to approach a girl at a bar and be like, uh, do you want to buy a drink for oh fuck I screwed that up um it's so it's 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 interesting to see where it starts but it's definitely not essential by any means even I would say in Seagull oeuvre the, the thing you're saying about the, the dweeb thing that's it's interesting to me about that especially uh going back to all these like Clint Eastwood comparisons where like in Dirty Harry I mean he looks like your dad you know he's just mm-hmm. like this like middle aged skinny white guy but he just sells it so good, you know. As uh, like, uh, you know, I fire five shots or six in the midst of all this action. Kind of lost count myself. And he's just like, holy fuck! Like yeah. this guy is the baddest motherfucker on the planet. He's fucking like bell bottoms, and, like mutton chops. And you're just like, he's like the devil incarnate. But then Sagal, who's like this six foot five monster, he just like can't convey that presence. Yeah, I get less dweeb and more like hasn't quite found a persona yet and doesn't really know what to do with himself or his presence. Partially because, as it's sort of implied here, it's probably because it was kind of thrust upon him by a power agent who probably (laughs) just sort of pulled a lot of strings and then Stigall one day is just like, okay, you're in a movie now. Oh, fuck. Okay, I guess I got to come up with an acting scheme or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I get that impression more, which is just I don't really know what to do yet. Yeah. And it's it like like it's interesting that we watched his most recent film and then his first film, because in Contract to Kill, he's so over the top with his yeah, he's like a parody of himself. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And it's like like I guess he probably saw what we're talking about right now and he's like, Man, I gotta up the cool factor. And so I was yeah. like, Whoa, what are you talking about? And it's like yeah. yeah. Uh so what are we doing in the next two weeks? I was gonna say we should do like we did late period Seagal, we did early period Seagal. We should do something mid period where sort of like he has just gone beyond his uh Any dark territory. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the sequel to Under Siege though. Uh, should probably watch that one first. The, what was the one he did with media. DMX? Oh no, Glimmer Man. Ooh. Mm. Okay. Glimmer Man? Okay, yeah. sure. Cool. Good.